Hey, caregiver. Welcome to the podcast that's created with you in mind. I am Donita Michelle, your fellow caregiver and host of the Selfful Caregiver Podcast, a form of selfish and selfless human turned selfful. So just what is selfful? Glad you asked. In simplest terms, it's that sweet spot between selfish and selfless. Selfish is all about me. Selfless is all about you. Selfful is about me and you making the caregiving journey just a little bit easier for us and our carries. Each week, you'll hear about all things caregiving, from actionable tips and strategies to help you maintain your health and well-being, relatable stories from fellow and former caregivers, and good information that we can use from field experts, all to help you on your quest to selfless. Because why? Caregiving is a lifestyle. So, hey, caregiver, are you ready? Let's get selfful. Hey, caregiver, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Selfful Caregiver Podcast. Today, I have one of my favorite people here as a guest with us. She is a caregiving professional. Her name is Nicole Hughes, and I am so excited that she is joining me today. Hi, Nicole. Hey, I'm so excited to and honored to share. Thank you so much, Donita, for having me today. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time out to join me. So we're going to dive right in. And I just want you to know a little bit about Nicole before we go in, because she is uh, she just has a wealth of information for caregivers out there, especially if you're dealing with discharging at this time, discharging your loved one Mm -hmm. from hospital into a facility or a facility into home. So this is going to be a very informative discussion and I'm super excited to have it. So just a little bit about Nicole. First of all, I met Nicole when we were both Peace Corps volunteers in Eswatini. And Cole, yeah. I'm planning to go back next year for my 50th birthday. Which is wow. Can you believe it? Wow. I remember we celebrated one of your birthdays. Remember yeah, your my 45th. Came. Yeah. My oh 45th. my gosh. I know. Five whoa, years. Whoa, whoa. I know. Whoa. Crazy, right? <laughs> so Nicole was born and raised in Seattle, Washington. And she moved to Chicago, which is the birthplace of social work for graduate school. I did not know that, Nicole. Thank you for that fun fact. Yes. She graduated from DePaul in 2015. And so after graduation, that's when she became a Peace Corps volunteer. She was a youth development volunteer. She did amazing work. She was one of my favorite volunteers. So, you know, I am a little biased. So, (laughs) but she moved back to Chicago at the end of 2018 to start her career in medical social work, and she has not turned back. She received her LCSW at the end, yes, the end of July last year. So we're coming up on a year to celebrate that, Nicole. Yes. Yay. Congrats to you. Yes, thank you. Outside of just being so awesome, she's very passionate about health equity, mental health, 
social determinations of health, older adults, and grief and loss. So she also loves R&B. It has her heart and she keeps me, when we were in serving at Eswatini, she would keep me on my toes with music. Like I thought I knew some music, but she would introduce <laughs> me to artists. She loves listening to podcasts, reality TV, Real Housewives, Love and Marriage, Huntsville specifically, yeah. and Married at First Sight. They are her guilty pleasures. She loves going out to brunch and studying herbalism. So thank you so much again, Nicole, for being here with me today. And I want to ask you what I typically ask my family caregivers. What does caregiving mean to you? Yeah, so I feel like I have a generic and basic definition of caregiving. I think caregivers tend to the needs of a person with short or long-term limitations due to an illness, an injury, a disability, and can't independently care for themselves. So mm-hmm. that caregiver may be a spouse, it may be a friend, parent, a child, grandchildren, extended family, a neighbor. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think, you know, that just sort of sums up caregiving for me. It does. Thank you so much. And how did you get involved in not only social work, but the direction of medical social work. Yes. So again, I, as you said, I started my career in medical social work in November, 2018. So right after we got back from Peace Corps, you know, I knew I wanted to work in a hospital because number one, I was like, okay, I know that would be the fastest track to getting my supervision towards my LCSW. Mm -hmm. So I was hired as a bridge, or we like to call it a transitional care social worker. And pretty much what I did is I served as a link and a bridge for parents, caregivers, and members of the healthcare team to ensure a coordinated and safe discharge home for patients. So I would call patients and review their discharge plan, you know, just confirm whether or not they got their medications also verified with them, did their home care services arrive? So, you know, I worked with patients with chronic acute illness, financial and social barriers, and just an array of complex emotional and psychosocial issues. So during my time as a transitional care social worker, I got the opportunity to attend multidisciplinary rounds. And pretty much what multidisciplinary rounds is, it's an opportunity for the care team to sort of come together and, you know, review all the patients, you know, go down the list of patients on the unit and review their plan of care. Like what's going on medically? What's their expected discharge date? What are some barriers impacting the plan of care? you know, just giving us all these updates. So the care team would do that and the social workers would be a part of those multidisciplinary rounds. And they typically have them Monday through Friday, like for an hour. Mm -hmm. And so during that time, I got to view a glimpse into the world of inpatient social work. And we would get our referrals through going to multidisciplinary rounds. Like I would hear different things like, oh, this patient is homeless, or 
Mm. Oh, this patient is has been readmitted to the hospital twice in the last month, or this patient is having issues with transportation to getting to their medical appointments. Like, you know, so the care team sort of identifies what is it, and then we follow up with them. And so I don't know, I I got into discharge planning because, okay, so my full-time job is I work in the family medicine primary care clinics. And I work from patients from the cradle to the grave. So, you know, I wear various different hats. But, Mm -hmm. you know, as a social worker, you kind of, you know, I think a lot of social workers have side hustles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was like, okay, maybe I could do like discharging planning on the weekend because I got a glimpse into it in my first role as a transitional care social worker. And you know, the best way for me to learn is just to jump in and immerse myself. And I feel like I'm a better clinician because of it. So I find the work incredibly fulfilling. And, Mm -hmm. you know, another thing is knowledge is power. I, I've learned so much, you know, as a discharge planner, and I know we're going to dig into that throughout our time together and just sort of unpack, you know, what that looks like, because it can be, you know, like I was saying, knowledge is power and psychoeducation is so important as it helps us with understanding, make, making more informed decisions. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to sort of dig in, but that's, that's where I got started. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, you know, and you mentioned that social workers have side hustles. You guys, you and teachers, it's just, you know, we have to really get it together in terms of the pay for social workers and teachers, because you make so much difference in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, because they're, again, like you are specific to being a medical social worker, but just in general terms, you help humanity. So... We're going to pray that y'all get some more money. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned a care team not too long ago at the hospital. So who makes up a care team? Yeah, that's a good question. So you have your primary care team. So that includes the attending, and that might be a doctor, a resident, a fellow, a physician assistant, a nurse practitioner. So there's your attending, the charge nurse your unit nurse, physical therapist, occupational therapist, and then the case manager, whether that's the case manager could be a nurse or a social worker. Okay. And then you have the specialty services. So these are, you know, different doctors or, you know, other folks part of the care team that you can consult for service. So there's a dietitian, respiratory therapist, which have, you know, they've done so much with the pandemic. The chaplain, which they offer like spiritual and pastoral care. Mm-hmm. Infectious disease, cardiology, oncology, sleep medicine, psychology or psychiatry, nephrology, endocrinology, substance use, intervention team, like so, so, so many people you know, that's not an exhaustive list. Mm -hmm. And you know, what is so interesting about that, Nicole, is that 
that patients get that while they're in the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, they get this whole holistic team and they also get it when they get into hospice. Now, we don't have that just as regular folks going to the, you know, to do our preventive care checkups, our wellness checkups. We do have individual specialty professionals, mm-hmm. but we have to do that on our own. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. not like we have a whole team that's communicating on behalf of us where yeah. it only happens when we're in the hospital and hospice. That's just, how can we change that? Is that? Do you think that that could be something that will change, like can policy change that? Is Do you think, and I know that that might be above your pay grade and, and out of your jurisdiction, but I'm just wondering, because, you know, as you were mentioning it, I was like, yes, that sounds a lot like hospice. Yeah, I, you know, I think you make up a really great point, Donita. Like, I, I feel, I mean, I would hope that there are changes. So I'll share with you one of the things that has come up since the pandemic is getting, so I work a lot with One of my family medicine clinics has a home visiting program. Mm -hmm. And so what that is, is we have a team of doctors that go and visit patients in their home, like once a month. And there's a certain like uh, geographical area that Mm -hmm. they typically, you know, there's that they'll typically go and visit. And so a lot of those patients are bed bound. They're not able to leave their house for some reason. But one of the things that I've found such a challenge since the pandemic is getting transportation. A lot mm-hmm. of those bedbound patients need an ambulance with a stretcher, and I'm not able to get them transportation to their outpatient appointment. So they might need it like a specialty doctor. Mm-hmm. Typically, like home doctors, they're, you know, usually it's like a nurse practitioner or or a primary care doctor, mm-hmm. and they might need to see a specialty doctor. For instance, like they might have diabetes and need to go see their endocrinologist, for example. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been able to get them transportation. The, the medics are only transporting patients from the hospital to a residence mm-hmm. and not from a residence to an outpatient appointment. So I say all of that to say that I do hope there are changes. Like, you know, you think about that, there's so many people that are being left behind that aren't getting the medical services that they need because they're not able to to make their appointments, mm-hmm. you know? And so I, I do wish, I don't know what it's going to take. Like you said, it might be a lot of lobbying, a lot of, you know, policy changes, but I do hope in the future we have like all inclusive, like wraparound care, such as hospice. Yeah. And yes, my mother is in a program called House Call. And mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. The doctor comes, but but we've been blessed where some specialty doctors like okay. podiatrists, oh, wow. yep. yep, they'll yep. come out. They have some mobile dentists, but like you say, for her cardiology appointments, she has to go out you know, the outpatient, but we've been blessed. Well, first we were blessed with my neighbor who is always helping us. I don't know what we would do without Kashi, but he has a wheelchair van. And so when she first came home from the hospital, he would take her to all of her appointments and everything. 
And I was so grateful. And that was before she was enrolled into the house call program. And then I lucked up on a van through next door. Uh-huh. So we now have Oh, one. wow. But it's still, you know. I like yes, that platform. Yes. Yes. And so I was looking for something else. And then I saw this van and I called my dad, told him. I said, fuck. I found a van, you know, and I was like, it's like very reasonable. So he made that happen for us. And we've, we, that's what we use. It's still, I still need help getting her out. We right. have a chair that we can get her downstairs. Right. So it's still a lot of work. So right. I can only imagine for folks that kind of are stuck and just don't know <laughs> what they're going to do. And no. like you say to the private transport companies, you have, as a social worker, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have to really prove why you need them to transport the patient. Yeah, home. there has to be a medical necessity. Mm-hmm. And so for the use of an ambulance, but, you know, our, again, the biggest barrier has been getting any sort of ambulance company to do that transportation. And, you know, you call after so many, you get, you get so many no's. So it's really frustrating to those patients that need it and don't have the resources. I'm so glad that, you know, you got, you and your mom, you were able to find a van. It sounds like your neighbor is really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I am so grateful. And just to your point about that, just we have to advocate. Like, mm-hmm. Caregivers, family caregivers have to advocate. Our caregiving professionals, like we have to be a united front. Yep. So that we can make some changes. So what are levels of care? Like you you talked about having those that may be short term, you know, inpatient short term and then long term. And, you know, who decides what? What is it? And, you know, who decides what? And, and like insurance and all that. How does right. that work? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, when someone is hospitalized, there is a lot coming at you, right? Like, (laughs) like there's just so much, like lots of people coming in and out of the room, like you're not able to sleep well, like it's just a lot of information. So I do want to break down the different levels of care just so you guys have a better understanding. But the first one I wanted to talk about was, so we have something called an LTAC. It's LTAC, so a Mm long-term acute care hospital. And they accommodate patients with complex medical needs. They might be on a ventilator. They might be set up with a trach. They might need long-term antibiotics. I think about wound care, you know, et cetera. Like, you know, they're just like really, really sick. And typically, in order to get placed in a long-term acute care hospital, you need three midnights in the ICU. So Mm. under that, we have something called acute rehab. And with acute rehab, that's typically, you know, you're hospitalized and you're, you know, you visit with the physical therapist and the occupational therapist, and they might recommend that you go to acute rehab. Mm-hmm. And so in order to go to acute rehab, you have to fully be able to participate and tolerate rehab services for at least three to five hours 
five days a week. So those mm. core therapies are physical therapy, occupational therapy, and a speech therapist. And typically, like, you know, you suffered a stroke or you just had a major surgery, like typically those patients go to acute rehab. And another thing is not only do the physical therapists and occupational therapists have to be on the same page about that recommendation, but physical medicine and rehab have to weigh in as well. Mm-hmm. So below that is subacute rehab. And typically subacute rehab is done at a skilled nursing facility. So in order to qualify for that, you require a skilled need. So it might be, you might need nursing services or, you know, physical therapy and occupational therapy. And they typically do those skilled rehab services one to two hours per day, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. five days a week. So when you're hospitalized, the physical therapist and occupational therapist, again, have to be in agreement and recommend for you to go to subacute rehab. And typically, you have to have three consecutive midnights in order for Medicare to cover your rehab stay. So we'll mm-hmm. get a little bit in. Yeah, I was going to ask that you about that. Yeah, because my Medicare. mother. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, my mother was in a, a, a SNF, sealed nursing facility. And she was a tube feeder at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, but the after she plateaued, Medicare wouldn't pay for it anymore. Mm-hmm. Would they allow 100 days, I think? Yep, 100. Um, uh-huh. But if you plateau, then they won't pay for it. But the yep. thing that I found, Nicole, is that that team that you mentioned, the physical therapist, OT, yep. uh, SLP, they know what's going on. And even though you have in the, in the social worker, everybody knows, but even though I'm speaking from a family caregiver's perspective, mm-hmm. even though you know that, or they know that the patient is plateauing and they plan for another two weeks, they don't inform the families at that time. Like, I didn't know. The only reason why I found out from the social worker that my mother had plateaued and they were planning to discharge her like maybe a week later or whatever was because I was always asking questions and I was always there the entire time. So I was like, well, now, again, correct me if I'm wrong. They were saying with Medicare, you only need 48 hours to notify someone when they're going to be discharged. Is that So, yeah, I'm sorry that was the case for you, that you had to literally fight tooth and nail to get some sort of updates. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be that way. Remember when I was saying I attended multidisciplinary rounds? Yes. So this is something that's like the care team is communicating all day long, not just in that meeting with multidisciplinary rounds. Like, you know, and during that, we get an update on the status of your loved one. And so, you know, the doctor should be communicating with you. The the nurses should be communicating with you. The care manager should be communicating with you about what's going (laughs) on. And it sounds like that wasn't your experience at Mm -hmm. all. No. 
Yeah, and a doctor had banker's hours. He, but I was always there, 9, 10, mm -hmm. 11 p.m. Most family caregivers, they aren't there at those hours. Of the right. Night, but yeah. So, and then, right. you know, you think about it, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. So, you know, all the more that we should be communicating with caregivers, right? Yeah. Like, well, this was before the pandemic, thank God, because I don't know, you know, because at that time, my mother was nonverbal. Mm -hmm. She really couldn't, she couldn't do anything, really. You know, she was existing at that point. She did some therapy, but she was on a seizure, anti-seizure medication called Keppra, which makes mm. you super drowsy. Yep. Yep. So, you know... I'm just so grateful where we are now and, and grateful that that her time the sniff was not during during the pandemic. And, you know, it's I mean, we're still in the pandemic, but, you know, the height of the pandemic, because a lot of family members lost loved ones during that yeah. time. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm sorry about that. But, yeah, communication should be happening at all times. I mean, not really at all times, but that should be happening at least once a day, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, no. Mm -mm. <laughs> I mean, it happened for me because I was asking questions. Right. I think for the average person, no. It shouldn't. No. But just so you know, like, you might have to advocate a little bit more for yourself or your loved one. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there is no perfect system. And I do apologize that that wasn't your experience. Oh, but yeah. It, yeah. we, we have a lot it's very broken and we have yeah. a lot that needs to be changed but you know it starts with us and I feel like there I'm, I'm meeting more and more people from like I say the professional perspective and the hands-on family caregivers that we echo the same sentiment about change needing to be made and to happen especially you know a lot of us are unpaid because yeah. of the financial situation like our carries have worked all of their lives and find themselves in the middle yep. and so that as a result it affects us so it's just we can go on and on about that right so, <laughs> right, right but back to the levels of care i'm sorry yes yeah, so um, okay so the so sub, have sub -acute. The, mm -hmm. yeah so subacute rehab which is you know done at a skilled nursing facility all right so I think I covered everything for that. Mm -hmm. And then the okay. next below that is home health. Mm -hmm. So in order to qualify for home health, you have to be homebound. So if you're driving and going to work still, like you don't qualify for home health services. And that's mm -hmm. a requirement of the insurance. And also in order to get home health services as well, you should have a primary care doctor because they can recertify, like say you need to have home health services for longer than eight weeks or so, your primary care doctor has to recertify those services mm -hmm, for you. Mm -hmm. So, But home health, so they have nurses that can provide wound care, check vitals, do teaching and education, medication reconciliation, catheter changes, that sort of thing. And then a physical therapist can come out. They have occupational therapists, home health providers, speech therapy, home health aides that can assist with like bathing and grooming. And then they also have home health social workers. 
So typically a visit, a home health visit would occur like once or twice a week for about eight weeks or so. Mm -hmm. And then you have outpatient physical therapy and occupational therapy. I've also heard of cardiac rehab, pulmonary rehab, and then the level below that is homemaker services. So what homemaker services is they have someone come in and provide light housework, help with the cooking, helping accompany a patient to their medical appointments. They're not medical at all, Mm -hmm. you know, but they can assist you around your house. So you either have homemaker services could be provided by and paid for by the state. And Mm -hmm. that's typically based on your income. And if you don't qualify for that, there is private duty. So that's just you paying out of pocket for services. And typically your care coordination unit serves as a central access point to, and they, you know, what they do is, you know, talk to the patient, assess like what some of their needs are, and they can determine your eligibility for, you know, that program and arrange those services. So if you do need a homemaker, if you do, they also have something called Meals on Wheels where you can get like meals delivered to your home mm-hmm. or you can get set up with an emergency response system. I don't know if you guys remember those Life Alert commercials. Yes. Yep. I'm falling, I'm falling and I can't, and I can't get, get up. Get up. Right. But look, my mother talked about she went one. I said, girl, listen, you're in the bed. <laughs> I can see you hitting it. And then yes. if I run out to the store or something and they come and see you in here, yep. I said, they've been called elder services on me or something. <laughs> no, <laughs> so I said, no, you do no, not no, need no. a life alert. I'm here. I have a camera. <laughs> no. I said, because she, she would do that. She would hit life alert be like, help me. And they would come and think I'm abusing her. I am not choking. Oh, I was like, so no, ma'am. no, ma'am, no, ma'am. <laughs> that's so funny. Yes. But it's all about safety at the end of the day. Yeah, um, truly. And then again, they have other programs like me and Donita talked about the house call or the physician at home programs. Mm-hmm. And again, that's for patients that just have a difficult time making it to their outpatient appointments. There's other community, you know, programs for seniors. They have senior centers that offer like meals and various activities. And then I also want to talk about custodial and long-term care as well. What is that? So remember how we said Medicare only covers subacute rehab at 100 days? Yes. So with Medicare, they'll cover the first 20 days of a subacute rehab for at 100%. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then days 21 through 100, they cover it for 80%. So mm-hmm. if you have like a supplemental insurance like Medicaid or another like private, private insurance, insurance. Yes. they'll cover like the remaining 20%. Gotcha. So Medicare does not pay for long-term care at all, but Medicaid does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'll share a story with you. I was working with a patient that was 70 years old, and I got this referral from his primary care doctor. 
This patient suffered a horrible accident, which led him to be quadriplegic. Mm-hmm. So he was bed bound. He had a trach, a peg, a folly. He was completely dependent on activities of daily living. And his wife was his primary caregiver. She was around the same age, like 69, 70 years mm-hmm. old. Mm-hmm. And they had four grown children, which all, they all worked full time, all had families of their own. And the wife, you know, not only was she the primary caregiver for her husband, who was dependent on care, but they had a adult son with special needs. Mm-hmm. So he required a lot of attention as well. So the family was, you know, I think they were just really stressed and exhausted and overwhelmed with taking care of their dad and this patient. So after this horrible accident he had, he went to acute rehab. The family told me, you know, he made a lot of progress. Once he was discharged from acute rehab, he went home and had home health services. So he had Mm -hmm. a physical therapist, occupational therapist come in. You know, one of the things that I tell patients is, you know, those home health providers come in once or twice a week. You should Mm -hmm. continue doing those exercises outside of the time that they visit you, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what they saw this patient doing is like he was regressing. He was losing his motivation. I mean, he had a lot of chronic pain and weakness. And ultimately, he plateaued. And so... Again, I think the family and most, the the wife who was a primary caregiver was just overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I don't know what to do. I, I, I'm not able to take care of my husband anymore. He requires frequent turning, suctioning and cleaning. And I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. And so this patient had Medicare and Medicaid. And I was explaining to her that, you know, just providing her with her options that he is eligible for long-term care at a nursing home if that's the route that they, you know, want to go. So we talked about that and, you know, so again, that's an option for folks that, you know, I know that nursing homes aren't, don't have a good rap. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but that is an option for folks is is long-term care if you're not able to take care of of someone. So does Medicaid cover home long-term care? Like if you make the decision to keep your loved one at home, would Medicaid cover that? So they only do so much. So remember okay. we talked about homemaker services, like having a, you know, someone come in and you know, provide that light housework, you know, cook for someone, you know, typically that again, that's based on income. Mm -hmm. And if you don't qualify for those homemaker services, you have to go to private pay. So typically someone with Medicaid is eligible for homemaker services and the state will only give you so many hours a week. So say for instance, they do their assessment and, and determine like, oh, this You qualify for homemaker services, but you can only get a homemaker five days a week for 25 hours a week. 
Mm -hmm. So they cap it at a certain amount. And if the state sees that you need additional care or additional hours, they more than likely won't give it to you because it's maxed out at a certain amount. And if, you know, they might say like, well, you may need to go to a nursing home. Mm -hmm. So that's really their answer to things is, well, you need more additional help, go to a nursing home. Mm. So it's kind of like they wipe their hands clean of it. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I know that there are programs set up for caregivers to get paid to care for their loved ones yep. through Medicaid. Yep. But again, it's, yep. you know, state specific and even jurisdiction, diction, yep. to be honest. So, yeah, yep. it's a lot that needs to be yeah, changed. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Yep. Because yeah. they can get paid. And like you said, most of them don't. And even like when they are getting paid for like 25 hours a week, they might be caring for their mom 24-7, you know, so they're Mm -hmm. not getting compensated for all the work that they actually do. Yeah. So you'd say that they'll say, okay, you need to go into a nursing home. Do they give families Mm -hmm. an opportunity to research and, you know, go and kind of do a walkthrough? Because I know for me, when they were ready to discharge my mother, they called. I remember because I was just getting back from Swaziland and I was looking for a bed. I didn't have a bed at the time. And I was at the furniture store and I got a call and they were like, OK, we're going to discharge your mother. I said, mm-hmm. what? Where? They said, you know, she said to uh, the name, it was Future Care in the Homeland or wherever it was. But I had heard horror stories about this particular facility. Mm-hmm. So I was like, no. No, ma'am. I said, give me an opportunity to go and research and interview and, you know, of these places to see where I would want my mother to be. I said, so I know that they sometimes will say, okay, we pick this one out or whatever. You know, what makes, what do you look for? I know for me, I looked because when you go in, everything is great, right? So it, right. what you see is not really what it is. I know we went to one. The reception area was very nice. The receptionist mm-hmm. herself was pleasant. They had a courtyard that you can see upon entering. Girl, when we got to that floor, I said, <laughs> oh, no. No, right. man. No, no, indeed. No, we right. would not right. be right. put in there. Right. And all of the rooms, and we were blessed with my mother. She had private rooms everywhere she went. But this particular facility, they were all shared rooms. Mm. And it was, it smelled. I was just like, no. So anyway. Right. Um, no, yeah. that's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question, Donita. So I do want to say this, and I hope it doesn't sound harsh. The hospital is not a holding place. Mm -hmm. So when the doctors see that a patient is deemed medically ready for discharge, you have to dis well, not saying you have to discharge them, but you know, but before that, you know, my role as a case manager is I would have those conversations with patients and caregivers beforehand. Mm -hmm. Like say they're recommending a you know, subacute rehab or acute rehab, I would go and talk to the patient, the families, the caregivers about, you know, I provide them with that list and their options. And so, again, there might be things that get in the way to delay a discharge, like, say, for instance, the 
nursing home that you go to doesn't have any bed availability or the insurance that you have requires authorization before you go to a nursing home, or Mm -hmm. you might not have your testing and procedures completed on time, or you're waiting for some equipment like your wheelchair, there might be things, again, that might get in the way of you discharging on time. But again, it shouldn't be a surprise. And again, I I know this isn't always a perfect system, but case managers and the care team should be communicating with patients and families before their expected discharge date to make sure they have everything they need for the next level of care, whether that be a nursing home or a safe discharge home. So I did want to offer like some tips and recommendations on choosing the right facility because I know it's not always a seamless and smooth process, and I know Mm -hmm. it can be overwhelming. So one of my first tips is I always tell patients and caregivers, like, choose at least three preferences. Mm -hmm. Again, your first choice may not work out. Again, there might not be bad availability. Your insurance may deny it. Yep. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's COVID. There's been COVID outbreaks in the nursing facilities and they might go on lockdown. So, you know, you'll get a list from your case manager. And typically that list should be, you know, facilities that are in network with your insurance. And so choose at least three. And then, you know, I know that patients and families might not always have the time to do a tour, but if they do have the opportunity, I say go and tour, you know, make an unannounced visit to the nursing Mm -hmm. home Mm -hmm. because (laughs) you'll see the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you you smell, pee, or anything crazy, run. Get (laughs) out of there as fast as you can. Yes, Mm ma'am. The second thing I would recommend is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. They created a five-star quality rating system to help patients and their families and caregivers compare nursing homes more easily. Mm -hmm. So this nursing home care compare website through the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid, they have a website that features a quality rating system that gives each nursing home a rating between one and five stars. So they're looking at health inspections, staffing and quality of resident care, And the website for that, and maybe, Donita, you can pin this. It's www.medicare.gov backslash care, C-A-R-E dash compare. So this website is so cool. You can just type in a nursing home and see how they're rated. Mm-hmm. And I really love that. It's very transparent. You know, it's it's really great. So you can check that out. And then also, too, is typically at hospitals, they have nursing home liaisons. I do have to preference that sometimes they're biased because they're, you know, part of their job is like selling up the nursing home and mm. sort of talking it up, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they are a great resource. Like they can answer all of your questions about that facility. 
you know, they are, you know, well-versed in that particular nursing home that they're representing. So those would be my three recommendations. And really, it's all about eliciting patient choice. Like, it's it's up to you guys, like, where you want to go, what you decide. And it can be challenging, you know, say you're on dialysis or a vent or you might have a medication that's too expensive, or say you have a particular chronic disease like dementia, and you want to look into like a memory care unit, or, you know, there might, like the list might be narrowed down for you a bit, but our goal as a case manager is to get you where you want to go. Awesome. So you do a lot with, Mm -hmm. you know, as a case manager, about how many patients do you have on your caseload? Oh my gosh. So on the weekends, I typically cover two units. I would say there's 60, on each unit, there's 30 patients. And if I'm covering two units on Saturday, it's 60 patients. So it's 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 overwhelming sometimes. Yes. It's like you have your pager going off, you're a message from the doctor, someone's knocking on the door. <laughs> you're doing like 50 things at once. But when I'm at work, I, I give 110%, you know? So yeah. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to listen to part one of my conversation with Nicole Hughes. Tune in in two weeks to hear part two. Remember to like, subscribe, and share the Selful Caregiver podcast. Until then, be selful.